Welcome to another episode of Context with Advanced Design. My name is Hector Silva, and today we have the pleasure of hosting Gavin Ivester. Gavin, thank you so much for being here. Before we jump into our conversation with Gavin, here's a little information about Gavin. Gavin has driven a forklift for minimum wage, which sounds really awesome. We'll dive into that later. He sold a bar out of beer, playing bass in a band hidden from the Taiwanese mafia and started a best-selling rum brand with a famous country singer. He's also a hybrid product and brand leader with roots in Silicon Valley, industrial design, and extensive European lifestyle and tech experience. He specializes in driving profitable, responsible growth through the power of design and brand. Gavin recently exited the role of VP Design and UX at Bang & Olufsen after wrapping up his efforts of an aggressive product portfolio upgrade. We're so excited to have Gavin on Context. Thank you so much for being here, Gavin. How are you? I know you're tuning in from across the world, uh, so we really appreciate you being here. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I live in Copenhagen, Denmark, so that's, that's where I am. It's really awesome because I feel like uh, prior to COVID, um, you know, Zoom exi- uh, Zoom existed, but we weren't uh, we weren't as comfortable as jumping on a call with people around the world. And now it's pretty normal. I've been talking to so many designers from all over the the world in different countries, um, and I feel like COVID really amplified this connection that we have now. We're able to just have coffee, you know, with people from anywhere. So I think it's pretty awesome. You know, I found uh, the corporate culture at Bang & Olufsen actually became closer in some ways, especially in those international ties. So I have a close, had a close colleague who was based in Singapore and uh, he used to travel a lot to Denmark and I would go to Singapore, you know, once a quarter and what I realized after COVID started is that I would definitely save up kind of my, my issues and I would kind of show up and dump them all in his lap and we'd have you know, a great sit down session. But after COVID, it became really natural for us to just call each other up, like spur of the moment and have a five minute conversation when we needed to face to face sometimes, but sometimes just FaceTime on the phone and the connections became much more frequent and there's no reason it couldn't have happened before, except that, you know, I do feel like the tools got a little better, but yeah, I totally agree. It's become so much more normal to just connect with people and, you know, and I think we are never going back to the same level of business travel or commuting that we had before the pandemic. Yeah, I hope so because I really enjoy how things really slowed down, you know, and, and uh, that's one thing I like about what the pandemic has done as far as us as humans just kind of slow down and as they say, smell the flowers. Where do you stand on commute time? Because I think one of the biggest benefits we've had is that, you know, you're not spending time physically commuting somewhere. And I think that's great. I have seen people saying, oh, I need that mental break. I need that separation or, you know, that's a contemplative time or that's a time like, especially East Coast people who ride the train 
you know, that's a productive time for me to just clear my inbox or whatever. Um, how do, do you miss your commute or do you feel like it's good? It's better this way. That's a very good question. Um, I don't miss my commute. Um, but uh, if, if uh, I think when people say that's my time to get away or, or, or my time to be productive, um, you just got to find another outlet. And that's what I've done. I've, I've you know, if, if I use that time for uh, gather my thoughts or and, uh, and, and, and I no longer commute, I, I just do something else. Um, yeah. Because now you have time to go do that. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. I definitely don't mean my, I definitely don't miss my commute time for sure. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. I live in a really beautiful place near the beach and near the forest. So I walk my dogs and it's awesome. There you go. Well, you're in uh, uh, Copenhagen and let's kind of rewind all the way back from where you started in your roots, which is like, you know, West Coast, California, United States. Um, you're a graduate of San Jose State University, which is absolutely pretty cool. Thank you. And, uh, yeah. you know, the, the more that I dig into the alumni network of San Jose State, um, there's some amazing designers that are produced there and, and they go on to do amazing things. Um, I, I'm wondering, as a student, uh, uh, what was it like kind of having Silicon Valley in your backyard? And um, this was like, you know, early Silicon Valley, like when things were being born, when, and, you know, it's like the beginning of the frontier of so many of these huge companies. Yeah, yeah. This was when IDEO was still Matrix, Bill Moggridge Design, and David Kelly Design. Mm-hmm. And GVO was around and Interform happened for a while. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, you know, and I think because I grew up there and it was always Silicon Valley, it didn't feel as special as it probably was because I, you know, you take for granted mm-hmm. what, you know, what you're used to seeing. Um, my dad worked at IBM for 35 years total. Um, and so, you know, being around tech wasn't that surprising. And as a little kid, I read the newspaper and I was always reading about, you know, whatever, advanced micro devices and Fairchild and Intel. And so Silicon Valley just was Silicon Valley and didn't feel all that special. Um, But, you know, when Apple happened, Apple felt buzzy. And I guess it wasn't really the first sort of big splashy success story because uh, Atari, I think, came out of Silicon Valley as well. And who was the founder of that? Nolan Bushnell or somebody like that. Um, you know, he was a pretty high profile guy. And then Apple came along and the story of the two Steves was everywhere. And so, you know, we did know special things were going on, but still, like, I kind of took it for granted. But it sounds like tech and design is in your blood because you, you know, had your father work at IBM and you consistently like read the newspaper to know what was going on. It's kind of the equivalent of us connected to social media now and the internet. Um, That's kind of awesome. 
You know, one of the most interesting things about my dad's work is, you know, he was he was a marketing guy and he was in charge of forecasting a chunk of IBM's business. And there were no tools. And so he learned a programming language and wrote his own tools, which was a normal thing to do if you were a marketing guy at IBM in that period. So yeah, I, you know, I definitely grew up hearing about my dad coding, which wow. seemed like a totally normal thing. And I look back on it and think, wow, you know, we have such incredible tools and they just didn't. <laughs> That's really awesome. Do you ever just sit down and do you ever just geek out with your dad about stuff like this? Well, my dad's gone, um, but you know when. Uh, but the funny, the funny thing about my dad was, um, I stayed living with my parents when I first started my first job, and uh, and that's where the forklift was. By the way, that was you know forklift driving for minimum wage, unloading trucks, dot 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 at Apple. So. I was in the back of a building on Bandley Drive, you know, counting chips. And that was my job for $4.35 an hour. And uh, and IBM got into the personal computer market and I still lived at home with my parents. And my dad and I had this ongoing kind of running joke about, you know, my dad would say, well, Apple's only in the computer business because IBM let them. And, <laughs> You know, uh, they, you know, IBM was used to being kind of very dominant globally. And, you know, he, he was always joking about Apple being this crazy startup, which it was. Um, but it was it worked out great for me. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Uh, uh, you know, it's in your bio and, and also in your LinkedIn. When, when I was kind of preparing for this interview, um, I was just like, no way. You know, it says that you began your career at Apple driving a forklift uh, so that you can kind of through design school. So you were going to design school and you were then you had like this job to, you know, uh, kind of. Yeah. yeah, I would love to hear that story. That that sounds amazing. Well, so I was that kid in school, you know, in grade school who was semi paying attention to the teacher and drawing constantly. Right. So I was cartooning and I was drawing motocross races and stuff. So, you know, I, I raced BMX and skateboarded as a kid and I had my grandfather's drawing board in my bedroom. And, you know, so I was doing my own design projects there. And in school, I was semi engaged and, and didn't really enjoy it. And I got to the end of high school and saw a lot of my friends heading off to university without a clear purpose in mind. And I refused to do that. I wanted kind of really almost a vocational goal. Like I wanted to know exactly what I was gonna get out of the university experience, which eventually, you know, I learned, <laughs> I didn't get out of it. I, I got something probably better out of it than what I chased, but at that time, basic, you know, my basic idea was I'm not doing this until I have a clear, clear idea of what I'm doing. And uh, so 
a relative told me about this job on the receiving dock at Apple. And I just applied for it thinking, well, if I get this, I'll just do that for a while. And hopefully I'll be able to look around this company and find some mentors and figure out what I want to do. And, you know, today it's very fashionable to look at what I did and call it a gap year. So that's what I call it now. But at the time it was me trying to find my way. And what I, and I had had some exposure to design in high school. We had a great art teacher who taught graphic design and my brother was actually uh, working as a graphic designer. So I knew all about that and somehow it just wasn't enough. It wasn't the right fit for me. And I met the industrial design guys at Apple. It was a very small team at that point. And um, they kind of became my mentors. And then quickly, you know, I met some frog people. That was right at the beginning of the frog relationship. And those guys mentored me as well. And I realized that car design was industrial design. Mm -hmm. That was like the big breakthrough that got me to go to university because I have been a complete car nut since I was, you know, a, a low single digit age. I could name all the cars on the road, like make, year and model. Crazy. Um, and I think I just fell in love with, you know, moving sculpture or beautiful machines or something. And so those, you know, those mentors hipped me to the fact that car design is industrial design. And then I kind of found my way towards San Jose State. And, uh, and what I ended up doing was I took five years to get my four-year degree and, and I never left Apple. So I worked part-time during the school year and I worked full-time during the summers and, uh, and I just stayed there and I moved through a succession of engineering jobs so that I was ultimately uh, kind of the, the lowest man on the totem pole doing mechanical design on a Macintosh, designing it from the inside out, right at the moment when Frog Design got fired from mm -hmm. Apple because Steve had been pushed out by John Scully. He had started Next and he hired Frog to do the Next Cube and that violated Frog's exclusivity agreement with Apple. And it came as this like shocking bolt out of the blue. Frog just got fired. We thought that would never happen. And there was really not an industrial design team in the company because all our design work was done by Frog. And I put my hand up as a, I don't know, I was probably three years into my design, you know, getting my design degree at San Jose State. And I put my hand up and said, can I take a shot at the exterior of this thing that I'm already working on with a team of, you know, five engineers from the inside out? And they said, yeah, sure. We'll build some foam models. That's, you know, yeah, take your best shot. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what I did. And I ended up shipping the first Mac that I designed before I finished my design degree. So I have a whole weird spin on the university experience because of that what a great way to leave school with <laughs> with a portfolio of i mean this 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 sounds very hollywood i mean it's awesome i mean that, that's fantastic it says here that you designed the original power book and you you ended up doing a bunch of things and and uh my question to you is as a student um 
what kind of mindset does it take for you to to be pretty bold and 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 take these risks and say hey i can do something like this or at least give me a shot to 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 try to do something like this um i mean that right there what you just described sounds like an opportunity of a lifetime it was but it didn't it didn't feel that bold at the time mm -hmm. and you know i I feel like my life story sounds like the movie Forrest Gump, where he's just sort of, <laughs> he's in the right place at the right time, a number of times. And the, the only credit I can really take for that is sort of realizing the opportunity was worth jumping on. But um, I was very comfortable at Apple and you know, felt very safe. I had already been through a number of jobs and I was kind of moving in the right direction and, you know, kind of moving through. Uh, my first job in engineering was as this clerk. I kept the storeroom and I helped double E's get their components they needed. So that was like a half step out of the receiving dock. And then I moved into an expediter role where I was chasing down blueprints. And then I was, uh, you know, ultimately I was, you know, designing disk drive brackets and light pipes and things like that when I did that, when I designed that first Mac. Um, so I was, you know, sitting in the CAD room, but I, it was, it, you know, the old joke about the frog in the boiling water. I, you know, I had been there, the only place I ever worked. I never worked at, you know, fast food or anything like that. It's just like, that was my first job. And I just was slowly sort of moving in the right direction. I felt like people around me trusted and supported me. And so me putting my hand up and saying, can we potentially waste some money on some foam models didn't feel like a huge risk. Mm -hmm. So it didn't feel all that bold to, to go for it, honestly. Um, yeah, that's yeah. fair. That's fair. Um, did you ever cross paths with like, you know, Robert Bruner or anyone else that started to come in around that time? Yeah, yeah. Bob, Bob was my boss. So Bob, uh, Bob was at Lunar. So Lunar had, you know, the three principal founders and, uh, and when the Apple industrial design group started to form, I was, you know, one of the first members, um, because I was already there. And then we brought in other people, um, but the model there was that most of the work was done outside. So Lunar was definitely one of the firms that we worked with. Plus I was, you know, in my twenties and running around with all my, you know, sort of single young designer friends um, and, and then my musician friends on the other side. And so, you know, I was friends with people at Lunar and we worked with Bob on that. And then Bob came over and joined Apple and became my boss. So, yeah, I mean, I, I worked That's very awesome. closely. Yeah. So then after almost a decade of being at Apple, starting as a forklift driver and doing that humble work up until being an industrial designer, and then you ended up leaving uh, and you founded your own kind of consultancy. Yep. And uh, that must have been very exciting, um, but also that must have been kind of scary, I would imagine. Yeah, it was because I had only worked in one place. Right. But that's also what that's why I left. Um, and, you know, I wanted 
I was envious of my friends in consultancies, frankly, who had a ton of variety in their portfolios. And I felt like I was lacking that. And so, you know, at the wise old age of 29, I decided I didn't want to get stuck as an Apple lifer. I was worried that that was, you know, now I kind of think maybe that wouldn't have been the worst thing. But, um, but I, uh, I was seeking variety. And the other thing was that throughout my career at Apple, I had always been a little bit scared that I didn't know how to do what was on my plate because I kept getting more and more difficult challenges. And, you know, I, I did, uh, I think the first or the second thing I designed was, a, was the personal laser writer. And then I, you know, I ended up doing a bunch of speculative things like Knowledge Navigator. I did, uh, a whole bunch of us worked on Newton, the very first Newton. Um, and then we did, the, I did the power book and then I got to do the power book that I really wanted to do, which was the power book duo, um, which was, I think, more, it was more successful on a design level. And, uh, and because of a body of work that I'd done looking at the future of mobility in computing and those two power books, I became the laptop guy. Mm-hmm. And it was the first point in my career at Apple where I could look down the road for two or three years. I knew all the projects I was going to get asked to do, and I knew how to do all of them. And that's when I quit because I wasn't scared anymore. And I thought, well, I think my learning's plateauing. And, you know, if I don't get some variety in my portfolio, you know, I'm going to lose that opportunity forever. So I jumped ship, totally scared that I would not be able to sell myself as a consultant Mm -hmm. and, you know, and be successful. But I saved up a bunch of money and saved up a bunch of vacation and, you know, like did everything I could to try and give myself an easy entry. And, you know, it was a moment when I knew I was about to win a bunch of design awards because of work that I'd done at Apple. And, uh, and, you know, I worked out a personal budget spreadsheet that was, you know, here's, here's if I have to cut back, like I'm going to trim all my expenses down as much as I can. And here's if it doesn't go well, here's the, the bare minimum if I feel like, you know, I've got to bail out and find a job. Um, I had all of that in place when I left to start Tonic Industrial Design. So I was, I was one scared entrepreneur. Let me tell you that. It's like you were a business, uh, uh, a businessman way before starting the business. You had everything you had thought about everything strategized. I mean, that's good, right? Like you're about to go into business, um, on your own. So you should definitely, there's, there's things beyond design that, that are required to, to start your own studio. So, um, it's, really interesting that you mentioned um you know that you were at apple and sometimes you didn't know if you were doing things right it gives me i think everyone has those feelings uh whether in design or in life where you're just like Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't matter how many years of experience you have and you sometimes scratch your head and you're like you know am i doing this right you know you get that imposter syndrome um and you just started your own consultancy um, 
and you're just like, let's do this. You know, did you ever experience uncertainties or any type of insecurities as you maybe your first year, uh, you know, started uh, starting tonic industrial design? I struggle with that one because I honestly don't relate much to the imposter syndrome thing. And I think, you know, I give a lot of credit to my parents and give me, giving me pretty, <laughs> I was about to say pretty healthy self-confidence, maybe more than healthy self-confidence. I'm not sure. And yet, you know, at the same time, as I just said, you know, I was super scared when I started Tonic because I thought I have no idea if I know how to get business. Hmm. And, you know, I, I could be doing, I could be making the worst move of my life and I could starve, <laughs> you know, like I was totally in fear, but I didn't, I don't, I guess I just, I don't relate to the, the imposter thing. Cause I guess the way I sort of understand that is that you're doing a thing and you feel like you're not worthy of what you're actually in the middle of achieving. And you, you, you worry that everyone else will figure that out. And once I get something moving, like, I don't feel that at all. I feel like, okay, like it's on, here we go. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah. I think I can relate to you whenever I, I do something new initiative or, or anything that's new. I think the excitement is so overwhelming that mm -hmm. I, any insecurity I have, it just kind of, there's no room for it. My, my blood is boiling and I'm so, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm chasing this vision that I have that there's just no room for. Yeah. And, and, but the thing is, I can say that 10 years ago, it, it, it was different, right? And I think a lot of that has to do with growth and experience. Um, and you, you know, at 15, you're not like, oh yeah, like that's going to happen. It, it, it takes time. It's an, it's an evolution for sure. Yeah. I feel like, you know, at the beginning of my career, I had a little, I had sort of this ingredient, which was intuition very much the way I think artists have intuition. And so I would sort of just chase what I thought was really right. And I think on some level, that's why a lot of people become designers is they want to fix things that are bad. Um, but, you know, why did, why did I design a, a chair when there's already been thousands of chairs designed? Well, because I think I can do it better. I hope that's what people think when they do that. Otherwise, why are they doing it? Um, and so, you know, later in my career, I started to really kind of just trust that my intuition was going to supply ideas. And I try to pump as much data into the back of my brain for a good idea to pop out. But, um, you know, in those early days, I definitely was obsessed kind of like what you're saying you you know you get in the moment and it's all you can think about and you know when you're at the beginning of your career depending on you know everybody's life situation is different right but all I really had to think about was work um, I didn't have any other real responsibilities so I could kind of chase it as hard as I was able and follow that in, you know, that sort of early version of intuition and it kind of worked. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So you you did your own consultancy for about five years. I'm going to kind of start yeah. speeding up here through sure. through the amazing work that you've been doing, because after you started your consultancy, you then ended up working at Nike. Um, I'm assuming that Nike was one of your clients and then that transition was pretty organic to Nike. Um, but then after that, that is, you. That is not how it happened. <laughs> we can talk about that or not. Um, I love, I, then, okay. yeah, I would love to hear that story. But after, after you, you did, you know, quite some time at Nike, I mean, your resume starts to stack up with these brands. You have Puma, Gibson guitar, which is kind of cool because you said you were a musician. Uh, yeah. You consulted at Under Armour. Um, you were then at uh, your founding partner and strategic advisor at this, um, you know, amazing uh, uh, Blue Chair Bay Rum, which was done from scratch. Uh, and that's what the whole Nashville aspect comes into play. Um, and then after that, uh, you ended up at uh, Bang & Olufsen in Copenhagen for the last couple of years. Um, yeah. But you've you've had influence in really big brands like these brands uh are trendsetters they they inform us designers and then i mean we wear these objects we use these objects um you know you you were a vp of design and i think another title you had was global director or global creative director um at, when you were at nike um I, i've always asked um always scratch my head to, to try to um, get an answer of what exactly does that mean when you become a global creative director? Because global is pretty big. Yeah, but it just means in a company like Nike, it just means you're touching the whole product line, mm. which is kind of how the, the company operates anyway. So it just means you're you know truly in charge of all of the forward design. All of it. Um, yeah, all of it. <laughs> I mean, and no big deal. You know, but, well, so the but the funny thing about that job is I had never designed a shoe when I stepped into that role. And Nike was a client of Tonic on uh, we did watch concepts when Nike was getting into the watch business. Mm -hmm. um, and totally separately unbeknownst to the people who hired Tonic to do watch concepts, I was uh, contacted by a recruiter, um, Michelle Stoll, who was, uh, who was, you know, looking for somebody for this global creative director role for footwear. And I was having a blast in my consultancy, making lots of money, living in downtown Palo Alto, surrounded by great restaurants as a single guy and just, you know, yeah, I had built this beautiful office right down downtown and lived a few blocks away from it. So my commute was a, you know, 10 minute, well, not even 10 minutes bike ride with a cup of coffee in my hand and life was good. So when Nike came calling through Michelle, um, you know, my first response was, hey, this is probably a waste of time. But if you're willing to waste some time on some conversation, I certainly am just because I think the Nike brand is so amazing. And, um, and it took months of back and forth and just like long conversations. And I was in Portland for dinner with you know, my future boss and uh, 
And I kind of stopped us in the middle of the conversation and said, you got to tell me like, like this is, this is getting pretty serious. Why are you interested in me? I have never designed a shoe. I don't know anything about the footwear business. And the answer, which is, this was a, like a pivotal moment that um, in me deciding to shut down Tonic and go to Nike, the answer was, we think you understand business. We think you can talk business to the designers and you can talk design to the business people. And we need a leader like that. And that was kind of a light bulb moment for me to realize, you know, the job wasn't to be the best footwear designer. The job was to, you know, really kind of make this design function a, you know, a business function without, of course, without losing the creativity and to ultimately kind of help the world's best sneaker designers do their very best work. Um, and then that was super motivating to me. But the other thing was, the other reason I left Tonic was very similar to the reason I left Apple. I realized that my learning was plateauing out. And so, you know, I had six people in Tonic and I had a, you know, a very conservative growth plan to get us to 12. And then I looked at my org chart and my own job description and realized my job description wasn't changing. And what I could learn at Nike was how to manage whole portfolios of product instead of just designing one thing at a time. And that's why I shut down Tonic and and made the move. Wow, that's amazing. Um, yeah, that that sounds like you know. There, there's been other. I, I know only a couple other designers that have worked in very niche brands like Nike. I feel like if I'm going to apply to Nike, I need to have shoes in my portfolio to qualify to work at right. Nike. I, I only know a very small handful of designers that are the exception because Nike is chasing these individuals for their knowledge on a bigger scale versus, you know, you know how to design a shoe or not. So I think that's, that's a really good lesson to learn here for those who are listening is as an, as a designer, as an industrial designer, um, you really want to go and change the world and, and, and make a dent in, in our, in, in industrial design, you need to go beyond industrial design to learn, other things in, to, to put in your arsenal, uh, like business and engineering. Well, and I want to go back to San Jose State for a minute, because that's kind of where I feel like I got a lot of value. So I was learning design on the job at Apple while I was in San Jose State's industrial design program. And in some ways, I felt like I was being prepared more and learning more at Apple just working than I was in, you know, my, my, my industrial design classes. But what I got a lot of value out of at, uh, at San Jose State was the plastics technology class over the, in the industrial engineering building and the marketing class in the business building. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I did some coding and I took quantum mechanics in the physics department. And you know, all of those things really helped me be a more well-rounded person with a little more depth. And I think I'm naturally curious, but um, 
you know, the, the, I think just having my mind stretched and, you know, working in those other areas was at least as valuable as the design education that I got at San Jose State. So stepping into a business role, I, you know, I, I, I feel like I owe part of, you know, my ability to do that to the way that education worked out. And if we're talking about advice to students, I would say, um, you know, design is not one dimensional. And if you focus only on skills, you, you will struggle. Um, and you'll have to find that growth elsewhere. It's not optional. You will have to sort of understand the world, you know, in a sort of bigger picture way um, beyond just kind of the pure design technical skills. And you know, I would encourage people, anybody who's in school, really dig into those other classes and get the most out of those and tailor those to what you think, you know, maybe is going to benefit you as a designer the most. So, you know, I think on the, on the business side, I took marketing and uh, an econ, I forget what econ classes I took, but, you know, ultimately those were really helpful and don't, don't ignore that stuff. It's not just an obligation. It's actually a really valuable part of your education. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. That is something that I consistently, you know, uh, lecture my students on. Uh, you're coming to industrial design. You're coming to school for industrial design. Um, but this is not enough for you to go out and be competitive and, and advance your career. You need to um, at least know the basics of physics. I've seen so many projects where the physics don't work out and you're just like, <laughs> yeah. you're like, are you kidding? Like, this is like one-on-one yeah. stuff. It's um, like cool rendering, bro. But, <laughs> or the mold, or moldability. Mold, mm -hmm. yeah, wow. I can't say that word, but moldability. Absolutely. Um, you know, yeah. So important. It's absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, but you've, you've worked for, uh, you know, kind of stepping back uh, on a wider scale, you've, you've worked for so many major brands here. And uh, I'd like to know, how does brand influence product and vice versa? So, uh, I hesitate only for a second, just because, you know, how does one influence the other sort of implies that one comes first or has power over the other. And I have this sort of unifying theory that there cannot be any gaps between what your company says it does and what it actually does and mm -hmm. what your messaging is and what the product is. And, you know, that's a change from how things worked, whatever, 50, 40, maybe even 30 years ago, where marketing departments were separate and marketing stories often were super fictional. It was like, you know, we're going to make up some crazy story about this thing and get your attention. And because of the way messaging worked, you know, we're going to pound it into your brain and <laughs> ultimately you will submit. Um, and the world just doesn't work that way anymore. And, you know, messaging is, so democratic, um, I think sort of two things, two really important things happened. One is uh, there is no room for fiction. And if you 
tell a story that's, you know, off axis from the reality you deliver through products and experiences, not only will people be dissatisfied, but they'll tell others. And then the other key thing is we don't really want to listen to corporations. We listen to our friends. And so brand and product. Well, here's the other thing, you know, brand is often thought of as being messaging, but product is actually the strongest messenger very often in any encounter that you have with a company. So, you know, your, your much more meaningful impressions are formed by the experiences you have with product. And if the brand is saying something else, it's a non sequitur. So, I guess my answer to, you know, what's sort of the relationship or the influence between brand and product is they have to be the same thing. And, you know, that's, that's, I think the challenge is getting the clarity on a brand level about how you're going to change the world and that becoming your mission and then creating products that really do it. You can do that either direction. And then I think when you break that down, the other thing is, you know, we want to listen to our friends, but our friends don't waste their time telling us about something that's like 2% better than the thing they had before. And it, it really, messages about products or, you know, people retelling stories about products only really happens when it's kind of life-changing, right? So you're not gonna, uh, I, I can't even think of an example right now, but you're, you know, you just, you're not gonna tell about, tell your friends, you're not gonna make a post about something that's like slightly better. You're gonna make a post about something that's like such a breakthrough that you just become enthusiastic and you think all your friends need to know about this. So products need to have something, a really a standout quality to them. You, you need a first, a most, or a best designed into the product before the design process starts. And if you can do that, and you know this product will be the most, fill in the blank, meaningful quality that you know consumers care about, or the best, or the first ever to solve some horrible problem that people have using that category of products. Um, if you can get that into the product brief before you start designing, then it also becomes kind of the marketing brief. And this, the, the, the marketing messaging really becomes just kind of exposing the truth in, a, in an appealing way. And that's to me when brand and product are doing it right. Um, you know, the, the differentiation is clear. The reason for being is there because you are going to change the world through, you know, this product and the brand is reflecting it just super accurately. Now, you've consulted in banking, healthcare, entertainment, sometimes focusing more on strategy than brand and product. Yeah. What are some things that you learned as a designer, as a human in other industries? The biggest thing I learned is that, uh, is that design thinking works. Um, and you know, I always had a notion that 
in a lot of those sort of business scenarios, I might be able to sort of find the way to a better solution. And what I found in 10 years of, you know, uh, a weird patchwork of consulting in, you know, healthcare, banking, entertainment, uh, the experience of starting Blue Chair Bay Rum, which was related to some entertainment consulting, um, all of those things were an opportunity to apply the way of thinking that I'd kind of learned through my whole career, but rarely was any physical product involved. So, you know, in Blue Chair Bay Rum, there was, um, there was physical product and it, you know, the most tangible part that I was involved in was packaging, but I didn't design that. I, you know, found what I believe to be the, the top three, uh, packaging design firms for that category of product and uh, did a, you know, I did a paid, uh, a paid phase one where they battled it out for uh, best design concept. And then I, you know, went through the, the whole process with the winner. But, um, you know, in banking and healthcare, for instance, you know, breaking down the problems, understanding where the pain points were for consumers, understanding what are the the actual business drivers that that make a business financially successful and understanding you know the way the market looked and what the offer was and what the experiences were like and finding differentiation those are all things that you do in a product design design job and uh and it turns out you know they apply in all these other industries so i always felt or often felt a little naked in a lot of that work that I did in those 10 years in Nashville, because I wasn't just waiting for the next prototype to come in and getting all jazzed and then doing some refinements and, you know, pushing it out and doing another round, of, you know, the whole thing that you go through creating hardware products. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I just found, you know, the way of thinking that we all use to do design is actually, you can, you can design lots of things that way. Did you ever, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting um, that, that you talk about your experiences in other industries. So, so what you're saying is design can essentially solve so many problems beyond design. Yeah. I, yeah. I, mm -hmm. Well, I always, I always kind of laugh when people, you know, when design thinking became a big yeah. topic. Kind of buzzword. And, yeah. And, you know, and, uh, and I had uh, had friends and colleagues ask me, you know, hey, can you explain design thinking to me? And I would always <laughs> say, no, I can't. For to me, it's just thinking. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of what we do. Yeah. Um, but you know that approach uh, and the lessons you learn absolutely apply. And you know, it's. I think, it, and this is probably not a good summary, but at its base, it's applying creativity to problems mm -hmm. and that just that's a good thing yeah I mean, i think now more than ever everyone needs you know a good problem solver yeah absolutely so, let's start to kind of wrap up this conversation uh with you uh, a couple of more questions i have for you uh, most sure. recently um yeah. you worked at um 
you know, the prestigious Bang & Olufsen. Everyone knows B&O from having this amazing, gorgeous portfolio of work. Uh, uh, and uh, you were there for the last uh, couple of years and uh, they're based in Copenhagen, Denmark. And yep. uh, that must have been a really awesome experience. Um, you know, I, I was, I saw the um, article that you wrote on your LinkedIn about, you know, thanking your colleagues and kind of your exit and uh, all the, the products you worked on. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I think uh, Bang & Olsen um, is a, a leader in this category of making these premium uh, audio products. And uh, it must have been very uh, exciting to and fun to work there. It was a dream job and, you know, it and, it and it was one that I never thought was in my future at all. Um, and, you know, as a, as a design student, asterisk, you know, I was working at Apple, so I was a little bit of a weird design student, but in those years, Bang & Olufsen and Brown and Olivetti and a few other brands like that were absolutely on a, on a pedestal you know, European design and B&O was the pinnacle of clean European design with these beautiful sculptural statement products, et cetera. And it felt like it was, you know, from another planet as far as I was concerned. And so to arrive there as head of design was kind of a pinch me moment um, that began as a consulting gig. And one of my best friends in the world uh, is uh, a guy named John Molinger, who I met when he was a product manager at Nike. And we stayed in touch. Um, we worked together at Puma as well. And B&O was our third company together. And uh, he was heading up a division of B&O and brought me in to address some design language issues as a consultant. So I started traveling back and forth to B&O and then uh, things kind of snowballed and I wound up moving my family here and taking the, the lead of design. And it was a blast. I mean, I think probably just even moving to Copenhagen was a blast as well. I always wanted to get my kids to have an experience outside of the US as well. And mm -hmm. so, and, and I really, I had kind of given up on that idea. Um, my kids are getting a little older and it just felt like, you know, we were super settled into a great place in, in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, there is a lot going for that town and we had a great life there. So it wasn't really on my mind and then the opportunity kind of appeared. So yeah, I definitely, uh, I, I've loved this experience and, you know, we're still here having a blast. That's awesome. Yeah. One of the questions I have here is, are you living your dream job? And I think you kind of, <laughs> well, kind not, of not at the moment. I'm not, not at the moment, uh, but I think I'm about to start all over again. Um, and I, I can't say what's next, but uh, sure. But I have a few really good things coming very close to being final. So we'll see. that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, you're in a position uh, with all this experience um, where a lot of people probably look up to you or they're like, I'm influenced by, you know, Gavin. Uh, I'm wondering, and I've always, every time I have someone on context, I always ask, you know, the designers, who influences you? 
right? I feel like someone has to influence uh, everyone. Um, we tend to idolize people and we tend to put people on a pedestal because they're doing amazing things. Um, and that's okay. Um, but I always want to know who's influencing the people that I idolize, you know, and I'd love to know who, who influences you. Oh, I see. I just, I don't have a good answer for that question because <laughs> there's no single design person that I look at and say, Oh my sure. God, that, you know, they got it right. Um, you know, well, there's such a long list. Uh, it, it doesn't I'll, have to be. I'll a... rattle off some names if you want to hear them. But uh, <laughs> it doesn't have to be like a design person. I mean, it can even be your dad, right? Yeah. Well, my so my grandfather uh, is definitely one of them, and uh, he he was a guy who never went to university and ended up kind of working as an architect. So he designed the house that I grew up in, but he never had an architect's license. He was a contractor, but he buddied up to all the architects and he did these beautiful drawings. His handwriting was amazing. Signature is a piece of art. Um, and he designed buildings and then he would just run the blueprints by his licensed architect buddies and make sure that everything was cool. So yeah. He built buildings in Southern California and then he designed the house I grew up in. But he also ran a country club. He was a phenomenal cook. He, you know, he did a whole, and I can't remember all the other jobs he did, but he did a bunch of different things. And he was clearly a very creative, inventive guy. Um, and so the, he's definitely an influence. And I feel like I accidentally am replicating some things about him because I've kind of jumped around within design. I've jumped around within my career and I've also moved around the globe and he did that too. So, um, so he's definitely one of them. John Hoke at Nike is just a genius. Uh, Keith Yamashita is another genius that I look up to. Uh, Stone Yamashita partners. Um, and I first met Keith working together at Apple. Um, but then, you know, it's a mess of, uh, you know, Michael Schumacher, seven-time world Formula One champion. Um, I, I always admire, and he was a little bit of a dirty racer sometimes. Um, but, uh, you know, one of his key magic tricks was, uh, besides the fact that he was, he was fast and he was really fast in the rain, but also he made the team around him better. And his magic trick was being able to give the engineers really good feedback to make the car better. Um, so, you know, the, the guy was a star, but the reason he was successful is he made people around him successful. Um, and there's, you know, there's probably a super long list of people like that. One of my favorite things in podcasts is to listen to non-designers talking about their creative process. So I listen to a lot of musicians who don't always get to the point. Um, and, you know, it, these podcasts are often, you know, you never know what you're going to get. Um, but I love listening to all kinds of creative people talk about their process. And I got to say, it's not that often that I'm super surprised and I learned something, but I just really understand, I, or I really enjoy relating to how other people kind of approach the process. And I don't know if I find that just reassuring 
or maybe I am absorbing some knowledge that I'm not aware of, but, uh, but that's one of my favorite things is to just uh, hear people talk about the creative process. Another one that I really love was there was a Netflix series or ended up on Netflix, um, Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's great is he brings on comedians who love the craft and they talk about the craft and they make jokes and they, you know, they get in a cool car, which of course pushes my cool car buttons. And, you know, they talk about other things a little bit, but they, they focus a lot on the craft and that creative process. And I just, I love it. I can just spend hours listening to that. That's amazing. Um, well, that's good to hear because, you know, your heroes and those who influence you don't always have to be, you know, in design. And I think uh, there's people who walk among us who always are influencing you one way or another. So that's, that's uh, thanks for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Um, one final question to wrap this up. And, and this question, um, I usually ask people um, about their legacy. Um it's a really big question. It's a very heavy question, but um, I, I like to ask. Uh, I like to ask it because I want people to start thinking about their legacy, so that they can, you know, have it in the at the forefront of, of their journey or their agenda, so they can be good humans and do good things. Um, yeah. We'd love to hear about what, what do you want to be known for. Um, I, I think. <laughs> the, <laughs> Yeah, so I wish you'd warned me about this one because I. It's, not <laughs> it's, really it's a really now, heavy it's question. Probably better, it's probably better to surprise people with that one. <laughs> um, I mean, for me, the first thing that pops to mind is uh, is just any sort of mentoring that I've been able to give other people is really the most valuable thing, and I definitely have seen people from my teams and various roles that I've had move on to amazing roles of, you know, super high influence and they've been very successful in their careers. And I love the idea that I might've helped them just a little bit and that they're helping other people as well. So for me, that's the number one thing is, uh, and I say this with a big if, cause I don't really know, but if I've been able to kind of help anybody understand the world or approach their work differently. Um, that for me is the, by far the most satisfying thing. And of course, you know, those people will finish their careers and, uh, and move on as well. So it's not permanent, but I think it's, you know, it's that ripple effect of influencing people who influence other people. And hopefully the world's a little bit better place because of that. If anybody, re- you know, remembers some of the projects I've designed, if they're, you know, if they find an old book or something, that's cool. And that's kind of it. That's a great answer for someone who wasn't prepared for that question. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much, uh, Gavin. I really appreciate your time. For those who are listening, I hope you were able to get um, inspired by this amazing journey. Um uh, that Gavin uh, shared with us um, and your amazing insights. Um, so uh, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, cheers from the States. And I hope um, we get to cross paths again.
Thanks, Hector. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Cheers. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Let's continue this conversation on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Discord. You can find us at Contacts with Advanced Design on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Contacts is produced by Advanced Design with editing and production by Bitwell Benitez and music by Shy Day from Pixabay.